It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. On today's episode, we talk about vaccine passports, and you ask us, will the delay of one year to the local elections benefit the Labour Party? So we're having a big old public debate at the moment about whether pubs should require a COVID status report, so either proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test in order to admit people to their premises. This has been sparked by a kind of off-the-cuff comment from Boris Johnson at the Liaison Committee yesterday. We're recording on Thursday. And the idea has sparked outrage from some Conservative MPs, large parts of the press, and lots of pub owners. Anush, what do you make of this whole thing? Do you think that, that this is the right debate to be having? And how likely do you think it actually is? In a way, I think it is, it's a really instructive debate, isn't it? Because it basically sums up what Boris Johnson's attitude is likely to be towards living with COVID or life with COVID post the immediate crisis. I just thought it really summed summed up exactly sort of his style of thinking when he was asked about this. And first of all, you know, classic Boris Johnson, they said that they didn't at first want to do things like this because they thought they'd be discriminatory. And our business editor, Will Dunn, has written a really good piece about why it's basically going to be pretty much impossible for businesses to insist on people who work for them being vaccinated. Mm. And so that probably there will be discriminatory aspects to trying to insist on customers also being vaccinated as well. First of all, going back on that, okay, pissing MPs off, not being trustworthy, perhaps not being direct enough with the public, classic Boris Johnson. Second of all, saying that it's up to individual landlords of pubs to decide. That is, again, a classic move by this Prime Minister, which sums up quite a lot of how he's approached this crisis, which is, I'm going to insist on certain things or I'm going to allow for the legislation of certain things, but it's up to the people whose interests it isn't in to police them, to enforce them. So we spoke a a bit about this, you know, in terms of trying to keep people just from the same household indoors at restaurants and pubs, as I think once the rules were in a particular tier a long time ago, many tiers ago, and how pubs can't possibly enforce that because first of all, it's not really in their interest to turn people away for business, especially not 
in the state that their businesses have been in in the past year. But also it's just sort of not possible to do so. How do their staff have time, particularly as they're, you know, having to do table service when they weren't having to do that before? They've been really stretched in terms of how much their staff can do. And also, do they really want to put their staff who are, you know, people who work in pubs, they're not supposed to be like bouncers, they're not supposed to be like public health officers. How do they put them in the position where people may feel aggrieved or may become hostile when they're told that they have to be turned away if they don't have a certain certificate or status, for example. So I thought those two things really summed up the way that the Prime Minister is going to approach this period where we have to put measures in place to replace the lockdown measures and the restrictions to live life with COVID. He's going to really cause a lot of divisions within his party over it because you have the more libertarian MPs and the COVID recovery group type figures like Steve Baker, you know, feeling betrayed by this and, and, and feeling anxious about the idea of going into a kind of regime where we have to check in to everything we do for leisure. And the government has some kind of central database of, of, of our whereabouts and, and our activities, which, you know, is, is a completely fair concern to have and and of course there are there are people on the left who are concerned about that as a civil liberties issue as well so you're causing those kind of rows without resolving them as well because you are sort of holding this holding the enforcement of this stuff at arm's length and saying oh well it will have to be up to people who run their own individual businesses and I've just outlined why that's pretty unlikely so I think while it's an interesting debate to be having because it tells you a lot about Boris Johnson and it confirms a lot about the way that he's likely to to lead us in a post-pandemic world it also highlights a lot of the practical issues of actually how you're going to implement some of these things I think it's quite unlikely in terms of practicality as well as on discriminatory grounds and of course the wider concerns about civil liberties and I do encourage all of our listeners to read a piece by our graduate trainee Harry Clark Isidio who wrote about this last week he, he got the scoop about how the government is investing in a, in a prototype for vaccine passports and there's some eye-opening stuff about how the, the people who are putting that together think it could work in future in terms of facial verification when you're trying to go to the pub or the theatre or a swimming pool or whatever. Yeah, I feel like I've been on a bit of a, a journey with this one because I wrote Morning Call on it this morning. And I think my first feeling is that I know this happens with other things, but I, I'm I'm really, really struck by the randomness of this debate, that it, it really just sprung from nowhere because of something that Boris Johnson said which I suppose is not unusual because he's the prime minister, but this, you know, won't affect our, our lives or be a live decision for months because there are two different views being conducted by the government at the moment. One into the feasibility of COVID status certification, which is sort of what, what you're mentioning about Harry's scoop there. And then also separately, another review into social distancing and the kinds of measures that need to be in place once lockdown eases. And so I, I feel like the comments from Boris Johnson have just sparked a huge amount of interest in this thing that's that's coming down the line, but, but doesn't really have any immediate ramifications and actually because it's such early days in those reviews the kinds of leaks that you will get from them aren't hugely indicative I think in that I think it makes sense that you would think well what are the challenges for pubs reopening if we are imposing 
certain COVID safe measures on them around ventilation, but sort of more crucially around social distancing, then you're kind of, you're imposing a sort of commercial restriction on them in terms of how many people you can get into the pub and how like closely they can mix. And I think that it makes sense, at least that the government, if it's if it's conducting a review on this, would think, well, what are the ways in which pubs could could avoid that social distancing requirement? And the ways would be around checking that people have been vaccinated and or getting them to produce a negative coronavirus test. And so I feel like even though, for reasons I'm about to say, I think it's very unlikely, I don't find it very unusual that is under discussion. So I, I have found the, the outrage a bit surprising and the fact that it's it's such a, a big deal. I think maybe because lots of people are, are personally affronted by the idea, especially, I suppose, younger people. Lots of people are personally affronted by the idea of having to put a swab up their nose anytime they want to go to the pub. I think maybe that maybe that's part of it. But more broadly, I suppose there's a, a short-term challenge and then the longer-term challenge, and I think they're different in the the short-term challenge is that it is plainly discriminatory to require people to have been vaccinated to do a certain thing before you've at least offered the vaccination to the entire adult population, which won't happen until the end of July, and things are opening up before then. So there'll be a window of, I mean, realistically, it's not that long, but, you know, of about a month where places could potentially be wanting to screen people going into their pubs but they can't legally or justifiably be requiring younger people who haven't been vaccinated to prove that they've been vaccinated which is where the negative testing comes in and then that comes comes with all of the logistical challenges like you were talking about Anush of of getting pubs themselves to test people on the door potentially or to well, you know, to check that people have documentation to prove that they have a negative COVID test. I think that's the area where pre the end of July, this plainly wouldn't work either. I don't think the government would want to impose that. And I don't think that individual places would have much of an interest or certainly not very many would have much of an interest in screening for those two things like vaccination proof and proof of a negative COVID test. And I think it would be very difficult. You couldn't just screen people for being vaccinated at any point before the end of July when people have been offered it. But in the longer term, the thing that just really strikes me is that like what Boris Johnson said is not that controversial because actually already it is up to individual business owners to decide whether they are going to just comply with legal requirements around social distancing or other sort of COVID secure measures or whether they want to introduce something on top so you have to have a negative COVID test before you go to that fancy restaurant or go to that gig or whatever and you can imagine that like individual places will make that choice because they they have been doing that all along in the longer term it won't be as controversial to require people to have been vaccinated because at least everyone will have been offered it it's also less likely that people will be requiring that. You know, if we know that the vast majority of the adult population has been vaccinated, I don't think that people will be as worried about going to a pub where you can just assume that most people there will have been vaccinated and, and no one needs to be screening for that at the door. So I did think that in the short term, that's a very controversial suggestion from Boris Johnson. 
But even with the timing of these reviews, it's not going to be brought in as a short term measure. And I think in the longer term, I think, you know, it makes sense to say that that different pub landlords or, you know, business owners in general will, will arrive at different decisions on this. And some places will be requiring tests or vaccination certificates and, and a lot of places won't. Do you agree, Stephen? Essentially, I think you're both right in the one you know, hospitality in general, pubs in particular have, because although, yes, there's the furlough and there's someone for staff and rent costs, essentially, right? That is what most of the economic support is, right? We're still talking about institutions which have, you know, taken big losses on stock because of the stop-start nature of closures, who can reopen, but in ways where they may not necessarily actually be able to make very much money. I mean, I just think I just think it's highly unlikely that there will be a point where any pub feels that they can turn away custom. Right. I just I just don't think that's likely in much the same way that, you know, during the sort of household and work meeting time. Right. You know, no business was saying, oh, I see you're a polycule of four men, four men and two babies having a business meeting. Yeah, of course. Come right in. Right. That dynamic is not going to change. I think the thing that's interesting is one, the, the reaction driven it to by the industry itself, understandably, hospitality has you know, both had a very bad hand, I think, in terms of the nature of the support it's got from the government, but also been quite poorly served by some of its umbrella organisations, which is why you're kind of starting to see the sort of emergence of kind of new groups to campaign for, you know, within the industry to campaign on various issues. And also the other kind of thing is the parliamentary party really doesn't like it on most issues. There aren't 40 Tory MPs who are willing to rebel, but I think because you're running with the grain of party opinion, you're running with the grain of the editorial opinion of, you know, the Telegraph, the Mail, the Sun, the Spectator, etc., etc. I just don't see how this is going to happen. I do think, though, it does speak to, I, I was speaking uh, to Conservative MP yesterday about the uh, Prime Minister's sort of greed joke. And they were very much of view, and they were just like, well, look, I, they said, look, I don't, I don't think greed is what makes the profit motive work, I mean, yeah, enlightened self-interest. And they said, but, you know, it's a fruitfully expressed joke of the kind the Prime Minister used to make all the time. And they said, look, one of the big problems they think and they have as a party is how can you have a situation where the Prime Minister kind of, it's not so much where he shoots from the hip and says what he thinks, it's he shoots from the hip and goes, oh, wait, maybe I didn't mean it. Oh, maybe we have vaccine passports. Does this government have a strategy? Hey, everyone, flags. <laughs> is that sustainable for COVID or for anything? That is the big experiment of this parliament. The weird thing is, though, that Boris Johnson didn't really say that the government is planning on bringing that in. And in a way, we didn't learn anything that we didn't already know, which is that they have these reviews looking into it at the moment. Really, the only line of interest was that, you know, individual landlords might decide to do this, which I think could still be the case. I mean, in the case of pubs, it's a bit less plausible given the nature of pub going which I think is in general a bit more spontaneous unless I suppose you're a sort of a parent with young children and then you need to plan your your pub trip well in advance and arrange a babysitter but I think for a lot of people who just go to the pub after work or spontaneously go with their flatmates or or like whatever it might be I think it doesn't really work but for other parts of the hospitality industry I think in particular more upmarket restaurants the idea that you might want to reassure your customers that they're going to an entirely COVID secure venue. I think that that kind of makes sense. It could be part of your your business offer. But just I think the way that, that Boris Johnson left the window 
open for that was not really that surprising and wouldn't require anyone that didn't want to be doing that to do it and it also doesn't really mean that very many places would ever do that. Mm. It is very indicative of the way that the government likes to try and blame individuals for systemic issues which has been a sort of theme throughout its response to the pandemic. The whole narrative had been we wouldn't do mandatory vaccinations here. We we wouldn't sort of insist that people have vaccines to do certain jobs or to go to certain leisure activities because that's un-British. You know, that's always been the phrase. It's un-British. We don't do that in Britain. We don't have to. We like to persuade, which, you know, I, I, I agree. It's probably more helpful in terms of how people who are hesitant about vaccination respond to to these kind of things it probably is more helpful to to have a more an approach of for for coaxing people into it and persuading them and and having them having a good communications campaign but what they're doing here is they're kind of ducking their own (laughs) role in this which is you know particularly in terms of BAME take up of the vaccine which is you know problems with public health funding problems with communication problems with trust in certain communities just to say, oh, well, you know, more people will take it if we tell them they can't go to the pub otherwise. That is, again, washing your hands of your own responsibility as a government. So I do think that the way that they're dropping hints about certain things like this, like you say, Alva, what Boris Johnson said doesn't actually mean anything for government policy and we haven't really learned anything new. But it is sort of suggesting, okay, well, you know, it's going to fall on the the shoulders of individual businesses to actually keep people safe. And then it's going to fall on people to, to feel you know, so aggrieved that they, they can't go about their normal lives that they'll just have to take the vaccine. It's kind of like shifting two areas of responsibility. That's another way that, that, that this kind of debate sums up the faults of the government, I think, in this whole thing. I suppose it raises the bigger question of what are they doing, you know, members of the government, Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock in particular, within the past week, Boris Johnson was asked about the possibility of vaccine passports and he was basically like, yeah, we're looking into it, which we already knew because they have these reviews. Mm. And Matt Hancock was asked whether, given that there's a a problem of vaccine take-up among social care staff, whether they would be considering compulsory vaccinations for those workers. And he said that they, they were considering it and there is a little bit of a precedent, but it's not on the cards at the moment. And in both cases, I think, well, given where we are and the kinds of things that need to be considered as we unlock, if you're asked a question like that, if you're considering something or not, it would be very strange not to consider these things, even if just to, you know, then reject them outright. They would need to pass through the system at some stage to be chucked out or otherwise. So I think you kind of have to say that you're considering it. I just wonder whether that's all that it is, that in both cases they're like, yeah, this has been considered because I suppose these are options that have to be considered. It's not a serious proposal and it's not becoming government policy. Or if they are signaling something by confirming that these things are under consideration, because in in both cases they have generated quite a lot of discourse. And I mean, my inclination would be that it's the former, that they're just saying that things have been, are being considered. But I, I just wonder if there's anything deeper going on, because politicians can find a way to fudge questions like that if they don't want to answer them. Mm. And they are sort of sending messages out into the ether if they say they're considering these things and that they're on the table, even if they're not very serious. Yeah, so I, I just wonder about that. That's a, a genuinely open question, whether there's something more profound going on there. I'm bad at making political predictions, but I would say 
that I lean towards what Stephen's suspicion was, which is that, that this isn't actually ever really going to happen. And if it does, it will be, you know, a handful of, of businesses that have decided to do it because they have the resources to do it and they feel it's important. I just can't see it as a widespread reality in people's day-to-day lives. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask you Us. Ask us. So today's question is, do you think the year-long delay to local elections will ultimately help Labour's results? Stephen, what do you think? So yes, for for sort of three reasons. The first is in terms of the crude task of how these results will be seen. The slightly weird thing about the 2020 elections as planned as you will all hopefully by the time this podcast out be able to read in punishing detail, which I've gone through everything that's up for grabs at a local council level, were in 2016, before Brexit, UKIP doing much better than they are now, for obvious reasons. Liberal Democrats, still a significant force. Many of the voting patterns at a seat-by-seat level that happened in 2017 and 2019 hadn't happened yet. And you can kind of see two sort of ends of that. One is Canuck Chase, which in 2016, not a good set of local election results for the, the Labour Party nationwide. You know, they, they lost council seats. They won the local elections in Canuck Chase quite comfortably in 2016. Canuck Chase, of course, is in Staffordshire, one of the parts of the country that is, you know, there are some places like London, which even in quite bad uh, elections for the Labour Party have moved towards the Labour Party. And there are some places like Staffordshire, which is even quite bad elections for the Conservative Party, have moved towards the Conservatives. And Canuck Chase, we would, all things being equal, I think, expect the Conservative Party to gain seats even in quite a bad election on 2016. The last time, so Labour didn't win, win Canuck Chase in 2018, Jeremy Corbyn's only actually good set of local elections. So just for a variety of reasons, I think the 2016 results will be quite noisy, as they say. And it, it may, of course, be that, yeah, and then, of course, at the other end of that, there are places like Worthing, where Labour did very badly in 2016, have done much better subsequently and would kind of expect them probably to continue that trend. But it's hard to tell from 2016 which would have been larger, your Canuck Chases or your Worthings. But it just just is going to be quite a weird set of results. Whereas 2017, a post-Brexit election, broadly the 
you know, the pattern in terms of party support, pretty similar to what we see now in the polls. The Labour Party polling significantly above 27% of the vote, even in, um, if you take sort of the distribution of it in the polls from kind of YouGov and Servation at one end, Redfield and Wilton and um, Ipsos Mori at the other, right? But even if you take the sort of the sort of worst results, as we see for Labour in the worst of polls, they're still doing enough to sort of comfortably do better on 2017. So just from a kind of late, the Labour Party spinning stuff, they are better served by these elections happening together. The second reason why Labour are better is than just as a kind of secular trend, 1998-84 Local elections after a landslide tend to be fairly good for the incumbent party, even in ones where actually where the incumbent party has gone on to make losses afterwards. So obviously, 1984 is such a bad example because obviously, 87 and, and 2001 were basically carbon copies of the landslide defeats before. But of course, the third thing was. Obviously, at that point, the government was at the height of the rally to the flag. All governments were enjoying across the world. That has gone down quite a bit since then. So again, for all of those reasons, it being this year rather than last year helps. And then, of course, in Scotland, although the SNP are doing worse in the polls than they were doing at the start of this year, and worse in the polls than they were doing had the elections been held in 2020, fundamentally what's going to happen is, is when the music stops, People are going to go, oh, there's 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 no easy path to recovery for the Scottish Labour Party. And although that will still be a major part of the story after these local elections, I think then it will be easier just from the sort of, I'll obviously be grumbling lots about expectation management and why it's something that journalists, we shouldn't really give headspace to. But loads of media outlets will give headspace to it. It will, I think, decrease the amount of attention on a set of local elections in England will genuinely be quite weird, and I just don't think it actually will tell us anything. And it will increase the ability of the Labour Party to pivot away from a set of Scottish elections, which I think will be quite important and will tell us something that complicates Labour's path to power at the least. I suppose it's also interesting, I don't know whether this is to Labour's advantage or not, but I suppose it's to journalists and political observers' advantage that these are elections very much taking place under Keir Starmer's leadership. There is no way of dissociating the leadership from the results because he's been in place for nearly a year now. Whereas the strange thing, if we'd had them in May 2020, Keir Starmer had only been in his position as leader for about a month, depending on what date the May 2020 elections were going to be held. But he, yeah, he was elected at the beginning of April 2020. And so a month into his leadership, you know, you could have read that as a snap verdict on this very new, slightly unknown leader who, you know, immediately had very good approval ratings, but people didn't know as much about him. But, you know, then then it's also, you know, is that the hangover of the Jeremy Corbyn leadership? And I, th- I suppose at that point, it w- his leadership and his shadow cabinet would have been so new that it maybe wouldn't have been as informative. Whereas this time, it's a year in, more stuff has happened. There has been plenty of good stuff under his belt, plenty of more tricky things under his belt. The public have an opinion of him. And so just in in that sense, I feel like, that's a blessing and a curse for Labour, isn't it? That there's sort of nowhere to hide on these results either way, that Keir Starmer will have to own them. Yeah, that's true, because any disappointing outcome that would have happened if we had those elections last year could have been brushed aside as well. We have a big mountain to climb. We've we've got a brand new leadership. We haven't had time to introduce 
you know, Keir Starmer to the public properly. We're mm. in the middle of the beginning of a pandemic. So, you know, that that all that noise got in the way as well. So you're right, there's less of an excuse this time around as well. And something that I, I think will be quite interesting considering the year's delay is what will these elections be the first ones probably since 2015 that are not Brexit elections. Mm. So mm. we've had a whole, you know, other news cycle that has, and and the fact that the Conservative Party won that majority on getting Brexit done. We've had that kind of rhetorical, at least, closure and a whole other story to d- distract voters from that preoccupation. Will this election be the first since 2015 where Brexit will not be in a significant way, redrawing the electoral map because the bulk of the councils, they were last contested in 2016 and 2017, weren't they, in England that are up for grabs. And so it will be interesting to see, you know, how much that politics has has shifted since then and whether it's settled as well. In the last local elections we saw in 2019, you know, the Lib Dems were gaining over the Conservatives and then you had Labour losses in, in those more traditional areas. And, you know, in the European Parliament elections that year, the Lib Dems and the, the the Brexit Party were the ones that sort of did well, and so will things have settled since then because of the Brexit issue sort of taking second place to the pandemic, but also being seen in a majority of voters' minds as sort of a done deal. Will that benefit the Labour Party in any way? You know, I think yes, it should should be able to. We spoke about the Hartlepool by election on the last podcast and whether or not it was going to matter so much about framing the candidate as someone who tried to block Brexit. I think there's enough issues that have come up in the year since that may mean that Brexit is no longer redrawing the electoral map and we might see more traditional voting patterns emerge. So I think that that will be an interesting thing to see and might my gut instinct is will, is that it will benefit Labour to have had that year's delay. But having said that, you know, it's very difficult to tell still because everything is so, so up in the air. We also want to be able to get around the country a bit as well in order to, to take its temperature too. So I think probably people won't be as sure what people are thinking this time around because of that lack of being able to get out and about. You know, politicians are often telling me now, you know, I would have been out, I would have been knocking on people's doors, you know, I would have been going to meetings and, you know, meeting with constituents face to face and everything. And they just haven't really been doing that kind of shoe leather work for such a long time that it's quite difficult sometimes to tell what a community is feeling. Yeah, and I think actually that is the other sort of significant boost for both of the big two. I think you're right, Anne, that the Labour leadership will not be able to plausibly go, oh, actually, these results are about anything other than the decisions we've taken and the vaccine bounce, right? But I think then they will probably be, one of the weird things about them being together is that there will be so much that they can, like, I mean... We shouldn't forget in 2019, the Conservatives were able to successfully spin throughout the whole night. Then then Theresa May losing as many seats as John Major in the mid-90s was actually an okay result for her. (laughs) (laughs) I think there being so many will allow them them to spin results that are, whether they're good, bad or indifferent. With the one flip side of that, then it may be, of course, and what happens is, is then heart the pool one way or the other becomes the kind of yardstick in most of the press about whether or not these local elections have gone well or badly but the other major boost for for both Labour and the Conservatives I think at least right if you think about the 2019 local elections where you had big gains for the Liberal Democrats big gains for the Greens and the pattern that both those parties have tended to do successfully in the past is they particularly when it's somewhere where it's elected on the thirds model so you have third of the seats one year third of the seats one year third of the seats a year after and then an off year is the what they do is they win seats in one ward 
yeah, so one of the seats in one ward, then they win the next one, then they win the next one, then they win the neighbouring ward. And this is how the sort of various um, smaller progressive parties, this is how they have traditionally won seats, both off Labour and the Conservatives. And both the Liberal Democrats and the Greens looked very well placed after that 2019 election. Now, yes, 2019 was, was quite freakish, right? The unique circumstances of Labour's kind of having a situation where they kind of had a pro-Brexit policy if you were, you know, kind of if you wanted an anti-Brexit one and an anti-Brexit policy if you, you wanted a pro-Brexit one. And yeah, the Conservatives had yeah, failed to deliver Brexit, were led by Theresa May, right? although those elections were quite weird for both parties. There was still, I think, the real possibility this year of a hangover effect from those elections, you know, in which you have like a high, like, you elected one hardworking green in this previously, you know, kind of this previously liberal conservative marginal, now with a very safe, seemingly safe conservative MP, green's a distant third or second. Why don't you elect another green? And then, you know, suddenly they wake up and they've got real nightmares. And you can kind of see that dynamic playing it out. Solihull, very interesting place to watch in terms of the Greens' potential of having a sort of Tory-facing target at the next election if they can do well there this time. And I think that, although that could still happen, right, that sort of spreading of the Greens and the Liberal Democrats from their successes in 2019, they have been handed a very difficult hand. Now, one view of politics, which I'm instinctively more sympathetic to, is this is actually bad for the Labour Party, that they are better off with a situation where they can recreate the kind of political conditions of the of the 90s, where, yes, they were the biggest force in the sort of anti-conservative front, but they were they won't contribute to that. Of course, the other view is basically that, yeah, actually the Labour Party, what it needs to do is to swallow most of these other parties. Yeah, and they're, yeah, they're, they're pr- primarily foes, not friends. And then it's great that this will therefore probably be quite a tough electoral cycle to be a smaller party than, than is much more reliant on shoe leather, is not going to get favourable wind in terms of proper national coverage and what will be an incredibly national set of local elections. So that may boost Labour. I think it definitely will boost the Conservatives because I just think, you know, one of the fascinating trends in politics is that in very, very safe Labour seats, the local opposition tends to be green or liberal. And it'll be on kind of a lot of local politics issues either, but it will be concentrated around an actual political party. And in very safe Conservative seats, it will be green, liberal or or independent. And I just think it's going to be a, such a hard election for independence. And if I were the, working in TCHQ and I wanted to make a name for myself, actually the thing I'd be focusing on this election is going, do you know what, we can afford huge amounts of postal ballots in the yeah, end in our Surrey seats where we've got loads of independents, Loughton and Essex, loads of independents. We'll sweep them aside and we'll gain hundreds of council seats in our safe areas, QZM, increase the amount of yeah, people who tied to the party, increase the talent pipeline into the party, increase the sort of campaign infrastructure because councillors are often sort of the mainstays of your local mainstays of your local campaigning infrastructure. And I think it could therefore be a very good election in terms of gains for the big two, just because the media environment really benefits them because it's just going to be such a national set of local elections in a way that it wouldn't have been if, if this were happening in, in normal circumstances. And I guess that's why I do think that there's a good chance that we might all actually sit down and go, this actually isn't a very great set of results for the Labour Party when you look at it, but they can go, oh, look, we gained X number. And you look at it, you know, so isn't that mostly off the back of independence? You know, isn't that back off the back of Liberal Democrats? Isn't that in seats where actually you, you don't, you're kind of at peak vote? It's entirely possible that could happen for both parties. Doesn't mean that both parties will take advantage of it, but this, I think, is a much better electoral battleground, even allowing for the fact that, of course, the vaccine stuff does make it harder for for all of the opposition parties, much more favourable for Labour than the 2020 map would have been. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review and ideally a five-star rating. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.